We've been talking about uh, components of the uh, that are part of a proper meditative practice. Well, we're going to continue on with that in the hopes that we put it all together and or keep adding to it and get you to a point where you can um, uh, meditate in a proper way. The next um, part of the practice that I want you to isolate out to, to practice um, is called sublime. Um, does anybody not know what the word sublime means? Everybody knows? You don't know? Okay. Sublime is a word that is, it, it means to be very comfortable. Uh, when you look at, let's say, the Wanchin Pusa statue or the Shakyamuni statue or the Amitabha statue, when they're sitting, they're sublime. You see that just a little, almost like a suggestion of a smile on the face. No, they're not like the Dharma protectors, very, like, very fierce, like Wang Gong. Okay, they're very sublime. Not very relaxed, very content in where they're at. A big component of the practice of meditation is the sublimeness that we miss. And sometimes we don't get that till much later on where all of a sudden we reach this sublime type of a state. But it's good if we um, put our minds into that from the very beginning so that our minds begin to resonate in the proper way. When we have a sublime state, everything is a little more comfortable, a little bit more relaxed, a little bit easier to, to deal with. The, the mind is less likely to be swayed to be moving this way or that way. It, it is comfortable. It doesn't need anything. And what that does is it enables the mind to disengage the concept of craving or desire. When we have the idea of craving or desire, then we draw up into mind thoughts that resonate with that same kind of vibration. And it doesn't matter what kind it is. It can be the desire of something or desire not to feel something. So if somebody has a problem, then likewise that problem can come up just from the desire not to have that problem. So if one has a problem with a spouse or money or work or whatever it is, those thoughts will come up because you carry them with you. When you have a sublime mind, then these thoughts do not come up just haphazardly. If you need to deal with it or to work things out or come up with a solution, then they come up in mind in a necessary way to deal with them in a functional way, not in a way where one is constantly just bringing it up in mind and worrying about it. So you attune your mind in a proper way. Um, you're not quite playing like you're a bodhisattva, but you're just attuning to that channel so that you can receive information from mind 
consistent with that type of a feeling, inconsistent with a feeling of craving or desire or aversion, if we sit with the idea of impatience, we sit with the idea that we're, we, we want to get something, then we will generate in mind that feeling. And that feeling um, will create appropriate mental states that fit with it because we're seeking that. It's just like you're Googling, let's Google desire. And what would come up if we Google desire? A fancy car, um, a beautiful woman, the most interesting man in the world, a beer, a pizza. What would you? What would come up? And all the time, in your mind, you're Googling that. You don't even know. So this idea of of desire or aversion is constantly Googling the Alaya Vijnana, the Eighth Consciousness, looking for something that resonates in the same way. Have I lost anybody yet in terms of what I'm talking about? To kind of get an idea of what I'm saying? Is that it's looking for something that matches that. So when we Google desire, it might come up, ah, a pizza. I like pizza. So it, it pulls it up. Does this match? No. Boom, it goes down. Does a Ferrari match? Not bad. No, it goes down. And it just keeps bringing things up in accordance with that. Because we've put the consciousness in this search mode. So it's searching for things and drawing things from the Alaya Vijnana that resemble that. The closest things that it, it can come to that that resemble that and um, and then it links them together a handsome young man a diamond ring a house kids and it keeps going and going and going whatever could be anything but the idea is is that when we don't know that we're doing that we don't know that we have this default mode that's searching for these things that are there. When we put our mind in a sublime state, we disengage that default illusory ego search mode. We want nothing. We crave nothing. The mind is in a settled state. So that is gone. All we do is then we Google sublimity. And so sublimeness keeps coming up. Sublime, sublime. Quiet, quiet, quiet. Why? Because there's nothing else there. If we search for that sublime, there's nothing there else it can call up but being quiet, very, very quiet. And so this is how we, we practice in terms of this. Now, I want to go to the Abhidharma to uh, describe a little bit more about the sublimeness. There's, in this part of the Abhidharma, they're talking about it as four com components. The first one is metta, and um, most of us know what that word means, right? It's like we, 
always, this is like the thing about Buddhists, you know, metta, 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 we even sign it, metta Gilbert, you know, you sign this letter and then you say metta. And you, um, I, I don't use metta, I use sincerely. And the reason I use sincerely is because the word sincere is a word that's an Italian word or a Latin word meaning sincera, without wax. And what it meant was in the old days when they made the statues, and the Italians were very famous for making their marble statues, if the sculptor made a mistake, he would get some white wax and rub it into the nick that he put in there so that you couldn't see it. Um, which would work good until you got a hot day and then, you know, then obviously you wonder why there's a the statue's bleeding white wax. So sincera meant without wax. And so when somebody was going to buy a, a statue, they would say, is it sincera? Is it without wax? Oh yeah, it, there's, there's nothing there. And it's my reminder to myself to practice and my reminder to say to people, whatever I'm telling you is sincere. It's without wax. There's no other agenda, nothing else attached to it. It is what, what I'm saying. And, and it's my reminder to be very much without wax in what I'm saying to people um, and to not have anything that I'm hiding. Um, the idea of metta is the idea of loving kindness. It's a saying that we want to, to, to be, have this loving kindness towards things. And it's a, it's a good thing to have to be able to harmonize with other sentient beings, um, to have this loving kindness. So when we meet people, we we meet them and we say hi, how are you? And we try to to act with them in the same way, understanding that we will uh, run into them again or have run into them in some form or another, and that we want to establish a harmonious relationship with them. For instance, if you got mad at the clerk at the 7-Eleven, then chances are somewhere down the line, you know, you will have more and more anger, maybe not even just with that 7-Eleven person, with another person from 7-Eleven or whatever. Or when you run into that person again, it may be the opposite way, but you are not establishing a good relationship with them. So we want to establish a loving kindness with, with all things because it makes the world better. The problem is, is that when we use the word metta, now it's become so generic that it's become kind of barneyized, you know, like the, the, the purple dinosaur, that, that it's too cutesy, too sweet. And it's kind of lost its original... Um, essence of, of loving kindness, of, of understanding and utilizing wisdom in when, when we use metta with people, that we, we understand why we do that. It's not just that we want people to think, oh, we're so good. You know, it's like I open the door for the old lady that's going in the department store, metta, 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 metta. No, it's more than that. 
It, we have to utilize wisdom to see that. So they say loving kindness, benevolence, goodwill is defined as that which softens one's heart. It is not carnal love or personal affection. The direct enemy of metta is hatred, ill will, and aversion. Its indirect enemy is the personal affection. Metta embraces all things without exception. It's like what I've talked about before here is a, the little baby dead raccoon affection. Oh, look at the little baby dead raccoon. But we're not really concerned about the, the dead rat. Oh, dead rat. You know, you pick it up by its tail and you throw it in a trash can. With a little baby dead raccoon, you make a little grave and you put some flowers on it. Maybe even say a little prayer for it, a little raccoon prayer. And that's what they're talking about. It's not this personal affection. It's something deeper than that. And the culmination of metta is the identification of oneself with all beings. It is the wish for good and happiness of all, benevolent attitude. Its chief characteristic is its chief characteristic. It discards ill will. Now the second one is called karuna, which is a little bit deeper, a little more important, a little bit further along the path. And this is a compassion that makes the hearts of the good quiver when, when others are subject to suffering and that which dissipates the suffering of others. Its chief characteristic is a wish to remove suffering of others. Its direct enemy is wickedness and its indirect enemy is passionate grief. Compassion embraces sorrow-stricken beings and eliminates cruelty. Now here's where Theravadans and Mahayana's practice began to, to divide a bit. Where this is still Theravadan karuna, the Mahayanas use the term maha karuna, the highest type of karuna, the highest type, to, to develop bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the practice which utilizes both wisdom and compassion. <coughs> and it uses this wisdom and compassion with the idea of metta and karuna, but it, it, it is an idea of this, this uh, desire to eliminate the suffering of all sentient beings but it's eliminating the suffering not just from giving alms to the poor but to delivering them from the suffering of, of the world itself and this idea that we we really care for others and we care for others not just like ourselves, which is Theravadan concept but we care others before oneself so Master Shenyang has memorized the saying to vow to deliver others before oneself is the initial generation of the bodhi heart of a bodhisattva, the bodhi heart meaning bodhicitta. And so when we make this vow, then we start developing this mahakaruna. In this say of metta and mahakaruna, already you can see we're no longer thinking about ourselves. And there's a bit of sublimity, a bit of sublimeness with all of this. Then we get to mudita, 
which is not mere sympathy, but sympathetic or appreciative joy, which you could call Dharma joy. And there's a joy of the practice that one gets. And this joy of the practice is something that one wants to share with others. And its chief characteristic is a happy acquiescence in others' prosperity and success. Mudita embraces prosperous beings. It eliminates dislike uh, and is a congratulatory attitude of, of a person. The Samantabhadra in his, in, um, his practices, um, one of the practices was to uh, rejoice in the merits of others. And when we put into motion that which uh, helps other people, and we see that the other people are progressing, irregardless of whether we help them or somebody else helped them, we have this joy. This is good. I'm glad. I'm glad. It's so funny because there's times that when somebody has has uh, made good inroads in the practice, sometimes we develop a real dislike or jealousy towards them. And unfortunately, that can cause harm, not just to, to that person, but to the people who could, could learn from that person. And, and it's a funny thing because it, it's even Master Shen Yang was very cognizant about it in terms of, of understanding that and protecting people from, from that and, and his uh, uh, practitioners that were progressing uh, well. And it's unfortunate, you know, and it's contrary to the practice, but it happens. And, and the opposite of that is this great joy that, hey, we're all getting along, we're all working, we're all on the same boat, and, and we're moving this, this along very well. Great Dharma joy. The final one is Upika, which is actually the fifth jhana or state of practice, which is a state of equanimity. And in the state of equanimity, then, um, let me see what they say about it. It says, literally means to view impartially that not with neither attachment nor aversion. It is not a hedonistic indifference, meaning that it's not a way of looking at the world saying, well, you know, if you, you slipped in, your neighbor slipped into quicksand, you just go, oh, well, you know, it's not that way. Um... But a perfect equanimity or well-balanced mind. It is balanced state of mind amidst the vicissitudes of life, such as praise and blame, pain and happiness, gain and loss, repute and disrepute. Its direct enemy is attachment, and its indirect enemy is callousness. Um, Upika discards clinging and aversion. Impartial attitude is its chief characteristic. And here the idea is, is that it isn't just, and it's very important they single out that, it, that it's not that one doesn't have feeling. Quite to the contrary, one is attuned to everything and it knows how to deal with it via the state of, of this equanimity. It can handle the situations as they arise. And it's directly running into reality all the time, but it's not being moved by greed, hatred, ignorance, or any kind of an attachment. These are all components of the sublime state. And so the sublimeness goes into the practice. 
So as one sitting, one has this sublime state. So let me see you guys, I'll have your best sublime face on. That's not a sublime. <laughs> there we go, come on. Let's see you be sublime. Come on, no fakies. Try to be sublime, sublime, like the Buddha statue, Kuan Yin. Try to tune into that. You're making us laugh. It's okay. Sublimeness and equanimity doesn't prohibit laughter. <laughs> okay, so I want you to try that. If you need to, you can incorporate it with your practice, with the other parts of the practice. But just try to, to experiment with it, okay? Don't worry if you come off the method or whatever. It's okay, you know, because this is just one isolated part of the method. So, so don't feel like you have to do this perfectly. I just want you to attune with kind of a essence of sublimeness. Any questions about it? Okay, go ahead, face the wall. Let's see what you can do.